When I come in to the the hall in the evening to give some teachings at this time, as as is happening now, I often feel moved to just take a few moments to express my appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha in the traditional way, in the form of a kind of ritual bowing that uh, has some meaning for me, but may or may not for others. But for me, it expresses something of my real kind of sense of appreciation for this human being who, if one reads the stories of his life, it seemed like there were some pretty challenging things he had to deal with, that he engaged in some quite demanding practices, and that he had a level of commitment and devotion to what he engaged in that was remarkable and that bore some incredible fruit that has been of benefit to me and to, I think, countless other human beings. And uh, what the Buddha spoke of and what he taught and what he shared in his life was, as I said on the opening evening, something very much concerned with the heart of human experience, not something to do with kind of religious dogmatism or belief systems, but something very much concerned with the actuality of how it is to be what it is that we are and what makes sense within that for us. So I'd like to speak this evening with regard to what it is that we've been doing here over this day, days of this weekend so far. that we have come to a meditation retreat, as I reflected the other day, for perhaps many reasons. And perhaps we read the title and thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. Awakening, inner peace and freedom. Perhaps we thought, hmm, I wonder what that's about. I'd like to find out. Or maybe we didn't look at the title, we just thought, I can get there on that weekend, I'll do that one. And that's fine. But nonetheless, I'd like to reflect some on what, for me, this is all about. And so what's happening as we're here on retreat? What's been going on as we sit and walk, as we engage in this practice? Essentially, from where I'm sitting, or how I'm looking at it, what we're engaged in is an exploration of what it means to be a human being. And we could contrast that with what it is to be a human doing, which is what perhaps might more accurately describe us much of our time, much of our lives. We're busy doing things. And we've reflected on that in different ways in some of the group meetings and the group meetings and some of the conversations there. And yet all of the doing, the activity, the busyness, the fullness of our lives doesn't necessarily bring us to where we wish to be. Doesn't necessarily allow us to arrive in the condition that in our really deepest heart of hearts, perhaps we could say, the condition that we are most concerned with understanding, discovering or inhabiting. And one of the ways we could describe that condition, there are many, would be inner peace. What it means to come to a sense of peace 
in our hearts, in our lives, in our world. And to know that fully and deeply for ourselves. I think one of the features of meditation practice and of retreats is we, we experience quite directly and sometimes in excruciating intimacy our mental activity. What goes on in our heads? Oh my gosh, what goes on in our heads? I remember a friend and colleague once observing, you know, if what was going on in our mind was being projected on the wall, we would be just too embarrassed to ever let anybody see. Imagine if whatever went on in our minds was projected on a wall somewhere. Of course it is. It's projected on the, the screen of our inner awareness, of our experience. And sometimes for us it can be incredibly <coughs> painful or frustrating or exhausting to be just caught in this mental activity. It seems incessant at times. At times it seems embarrassing. At times it seems desperately <coughs> tragic. At times it seems just mundane. Of course, sometimes, as I've mentioned, it is useful. But perhaps that's a relatively small proportion of the time. Because the incessant activity of the mind both contributes to but also expresses a condition of not being at peace. And so we might come on retreat thinking, okay, I'll meditate and then my mind will calm down. Or could I say, shut up. And then I'll be peaceful. And we maybe come here and engage in the practice with the hope and the wish and the not unreasonable expectation that maybe something like that could happen. Because it's not unreasonable. And it can be part of what happens for us. But it doesn't necessarily happen in the way we think it's going to or wish that it would. So one of the things that we have to face, really in our lives, and we get to face it here on a retreat because this retreat is part of our lives. Please come in. We get to meet, we get to face what's going on here. And one of the things that's going on, and it's going on, I would say, quite often, or quite a significant amount of time for most of us, is there's a sense of wanting things to be a certain way. And a certain way that's different from how they actually are. Hmm? We want things to be a certain way. We want ourselves, we want our friends or partners or family, we want our work or our home life or our world or our inner experience of thoughts and feelings or our body in all its remarkable complexity and occasional misfunctioning, we'd really like this all to be in a certain way. And very often it's not. It just isn't. And what's that like for us? What's it like for us? I mean, I'd like my eyes to be able to read what I've written down here when I was reflecting this evening, but I can't. It's just a blur. So I have to put these on. Um, and. Of course, then if I look through them, I can't really see you, so I've got to try and find some way to do this both. And that's how it is for us. I'm fortunate it's only turned up in recent years. Some people have had this thing going on all their lives. My sister had glasses since she was seven. You know, that's just how it is sometimes. 
And yet we want them to be different. We want things to be different than the way they are. We have some belief or idea, and it's somewhat supported. It's not entirely created, but it's certainly supported by the message and the story of our world, our culture, that says, well, look, if you just try hard enough, you can get and have everything you want, and life will be the way you want it to be. And those poor unfortunate people for whom that's not the case, they must have kind of messed up somehow. Because pretty much everyone else is going to get there. Isn't that kind of the message we get? And that we sometimes, rather tragically, believe. But it's not how it is. Life is not designed to fit in with our preferences. <laughs> Neither are glasses. Um, life is not designed to fit in with our preferences. But we can learn to live in relationship to it in a way in which that fact is not the problem we've experienced it as. So there's a, a story I was given, and it was given to me as a true story that actually happened that illustrates, I think, rather wonderfully how all this takes place for us. And... Uh, it's one of my favourite stories. I've read it many times in this hall and elsewhere over the years. I don't know if it actually happened this way, but that's how it's presented, as if it did. And it's the actual transcript, is what it says, of a radio conversation between a US naval vessel, uh, sorry, a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. It's a radio conversation released by the Chief of Naval Operations on 10th of October, 1995. It begins like this. I think it's one of those back in the old days before we had quite the same level of technology where they actually sent messages to each other, you know, on those little things that you type and they send, buttons, send letters across. Anyway, something like that. It starts communication from the American ship saying, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Hmm. You can see what's happening here. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert, capital letters, your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. This is from the Americans. It's all in capital letters, which I think counts as shouting in this particular form of communication. And it says, This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. It's like, we're important. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. <laughs> and it's kind of amusing, isn't it? Because we kind of like to see those kind of big bully guys get their comeuppance. Sometimes, if that's how it kind of looked to us, and it looked a bit that way to me. But 
It's also kind of amusing because we can see ourselves and the way we start to struggle and rail against the way things are and demand that things reorganise themselves to suit our convenience. You know, the interesting thing is that the lighthouse cannot get out of the way. And isn't that interesting? The ship has some choices. In ourselves, when we meet things that are not as we wish them to be, one of the things we have to contemplate is the possibility that maybe this is how they are. And it's not that they should be somehow different than this, but that we need to meet them differently than our habitual way of doing so. <clears throat> our habitual way of doing so. And that the appearance of conflict or what might have happened in this case, collision, is not quite as we imagined. Because in fact, we can change course. So, one of the ways this plays out is with our minds, of course. We see here, and I spoke about the sometimes discomfort or distress of a mind that just keeps going. And it's remarkable, they just keep going. Have you noticed? They don't stop. They might pause for a little while, slow down a bit. Maybe they even go quiet now and then. And there's that, ah. Oh. And then we notice that in the, ah, oh, it's gone quiet, there's a voice that goes, it's gone quiet, great, finally. And then we realize, oh no, it started up again. It's got excited about having gone quiet. And here we go, da 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 da. Oh no, I've lost it. The mind is not in our control in the way we have imagined it to be. This is one of the fundamental insights that we learn in the practice. We spoke quite a lot about this in the two groups that we had this afternoon and, and I'm confident I'll continue to speak a lot about this with practitioners of meditation because it's a really tricky one to get and yet it's so fundamental. Life is as it is and our mind is as it is. Our, our job is really to not so much fight with it, but understand it. To see how we get into conflict with experience so easily. In so ways we demand it should be like this, telling our mind to shut up, saying it should be compassionate, asking it to be patient. Sometimes we have to make space for our impatience, be patient with that, be acknowledging of its reactivity. Be kindly towards it. And fundamentally, to give it space. In one of the groups, again, I, I, I shared this anecdote from India. All this, it's, it's really a piece of sort of, I don't know what we'd say, uh, sort of wisdom within the community. There's probably a word for that, but I've forgotten it right now. Where the, the question is asked, so how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? When... And in India, they have such creatures, not so much here, literally not, anyway, not literally anyway. And a rogue bull elephant is large and powerful. It can destroy and crush and break any fence you might build. So how do you fence one in? And the answer is, you put it in a really large field. Then it doesn't need to break out. So part of what we're learning to do with our mind is to give it a lot of space. Not try and squeeze it and hold it tight and stop it moving, because it will just burst out in resistance in response to that. And yet, giving it containment nonetheless. So we're not saying, sure, just do whatever you like, but we're saying, okay, I'll just keep gathering, I'll keep connecting, I'll keep drawing it in, coming back, 
It doesn't matter how far, how fast, how enthusiastically or desperately it does what it does. We just keep coming back. We just keep coming back. And to do so in a spirit of kindness, in a sense of training or guiding this mind that actually needs us to support it for its own well-being. A little bit like training a puppy. I don't know if you've ever trained a puppy in your life. It's an interesting thing to do. But a puppy needs to learn certain things if it's to live in the human world and be well and be happy and be safe. It needs to learn things. It needs to learn to follow the instructions of its master, its owner, its friend, depending how you want to relate to it, its human friend. And one thing it needs to learn to do is to follow you and to stop when you say stop, to come when you say come, to heal when you say heal. Now, the first thing that happens when you start training a puppy, this, maybe you know this from your own experience, or maybe it's obvious when you think about it. You put a puppy down beside you and you say, heal. What does the puppy do? <coughs> puppy runs off. And it goes and does what puppies do. So you go and find the puppy and you bring it back here and you say, heal. And the puppy runs off and it goes to smell a flower or it goes to water a tree or chase a butterfly because that's what puppies do. Now, if every time it runs off, you say, bad dog, I told you not to do that. Don't you understand? I said, heal. Pretty soon it starts to think, this guy's pretty angry. I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. Every time I get the chance, I'll be gone. And the puppy does. If you train a puppy that way, it won't learn to heal. If every time the puppy runs away, oh, that's where you went. Look, come over here. Oh, you're doing that? Come over here. And you just keep responding to it like that. After a while, the puppy starts thinking, oh, this guy's pretty friendly. Maybe I'll hang out over here. Still doesn't have a clue what the word hell means. Doesn't speak English, after all. But it starts to form a relationship and a connection. And similarly with our mind, if we keep just bringing it back with kindness, with a clear but firm, supportive, (coughs) come back here. Abide here. You can rest here. You don't need to chase all those things so much. Come on back. Over time, it actually starts to more and more abide here. And you may have noticed just for moments, the mind settles. Or it just comes back a little more easily. Or departs a little less quickly or enthusiastically. Even just some of the time. You may have noticed these changes already. And we've only been doing this for a day. The mind has been running wild around and around for all of our life. It's going to take a little while for it to settle down. It's like you've got a feral puppy that stayed a puppy but lived in the wilderness for years and decades. It's going to take a little while to train it to heal. We need a little patience here and a lot of kindness and some understanding. To see that we're in a process of learning, of developing, of growing something that hasn't yet reached its full capacity. So it's limited in certain ways. But we don't judge that limitation. It's not useful to, to, to blame ourselves in any way or our minds or our experience. It's not that we're somehow inferior or failures at this. It's that this is how it actually works. And All kinds of learning work exactly like this. There's no other way we learn something new. If we already knew how to do this, we wouldn't need to be here. But we don't, and so we are here. And 
How this learning works is quite simple and rather, to my mind, beautifully illustrated by another anecdote that I like to share. And it involves a Zen student of um, quite a number of years of dedicated meditation practice who had an opportunity to visit the, the highest and most senior master in the, that tradition, that lineage of Zen meditation practice. And he knew that when he went to see the master, he'd have the opportunity to ask two or three questions. And he, he was sort of quite excited that this would be, he'd get to speak to this incredibly wise and revered being. And he went and sat in front of her. And she was sitting there like a mountain, so firm, and looking kind of sternly at him. And he said, Master, Master, please tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate? She looked at him and she said, Wisdom, discernment, wise judgment. Yes, oh, yes, yes, of course, discernment, wise judgment, wisdom. Yeah. How does one cultivate those things? How does one get that? She looks at him, hmm, experience. Of course, of course. How do you get experience? Hmm, unwise judgment. Lack of discernment. That's how you get it. That's how we learn. You recognize that? When we don't understand things, we act in ways that give us the feedback that says, hmm, we need to learn something here. It's kind of painful that it works that way, but it does work that way. And the fact that it's painful gets our attention. That's the point of it. It's trying to get our attention so that we'll look and see what's really going on. And yet our human tendency and habit is if it's painful we don't like it so we look away and we don't learn until we have the courage and the kindness to say I need to look at this and see what's happening here and as we do that and with the support and encouragement both from ourselves and from each other together that is what is happening we get to look we get to see a little more and so what this means is it's incredibly essential that we don't give ourselves a hard time for how it's going. Or if we notice that we have the habit to do so, we start to see it really clearly as something that isn't helpful and begin not to judge the habit of judging ourselves, because that would just be more judgment, but just to say, oh, this is a habit. I learned this from someone. And we did. We learned it from someone who taught it to us probably very well when we were very young before we even knew that was happening. And you know, that person learned it from someone else too in the same way who learned it from someone else. And it really isn't that much to do with us. It's just we got it and we need to then learn how to handle it skillfully. Does that make sense when I say that? Do you understand what I'm saying? The patterns of judgment are things that are replicated because they're unconsciously repeated. When we start to become conscious of and being repeated, we act them out in judging ourselves and judging others. When we communicate that judgment to others, they learn how to do that to themselves. It's quite efficient. It's not very useful. So when we start to see these patterns of judgment, we Again, rather than continuing them by judging the judgment, it's like, oh, actually, I want to hold this pattern. I don't want to keep replicating this thing on myself or on others. I want to start to hold it, which means 
not act it out, but not push away the fact that it's happening, but let myself see and feel and know, oh, oh, actually this is really excruciatingly painful and profoundly unhelpful. Why would I wish to replicate and continue this in the world or in myself? So that we need to be actually moving towards something more compassionate, towards the suffering in our patterns of judgment and the suffering that's in those patterns we might have that don't serve our well-being, which we might judge ourselves for, or which expose us to some kind of vulnerability or risk that we're afraid of, that we might be judged by others, for instance. That's often what arises. You know, I've got to make sure I don't do something that people will not like me for. Because it's really important that people like me. Because if people don't like me, actually, I'll be left all by myself. And, you know, for the first, um, I don't know, I guess it's probably about 90 to 95% of human history, human beings existed and survived only together in groups. That these kind of soft, sort of furless tooth, well, we don't have big teeth, we don't have horns, we can't run that fast. These fellas, these creatures, they didn't survive very long by themselves. They got eaten. But together in a group, they were okay because they were smart and they could look after each other. And so human beings survived in a tribal or village context for most of our history. It's only relatively recently that anyone ever considered or conceived trying to actually live in a house by themselves and think that that was the way to go. Really, it's just a... Just a a flicker of time in our human history. So it's really important for us that people like us, because if they leave us by ourselves, at some level, we're going to get eaten, it feels like. Maybe we don't think it that way, but the fear that arises, if someone might be judging me, if I think that, and it's not even that someone is judging me, but I think that someone might be judging me, is quite strong. So one thing we need to understand is that actually we're not in danger in the way we might have once been in that situation. That actually, as one um, remarkable teacher said, and I don't know who it was, but they said it really well, they said, you know, and usually it just pops into my head when I pause at that moment, and it isn't, which is another feature of how things don't always go the way we want them to. Um, it's because there's two things I want to say here, and I've, my mind hasn't worked out which one's going to go first. So the first one, he says, hoping my mind will decide, um, is that other, what other people think about you is none of your business. Do you get that? What other people think about you is none of your business. It's their business. It's what's going on in their head. Our business is what we are thinking and what we're doing with our own thought process. Huh? Does that make sense? So the other wise saying on this topic from, again, a teacher who I don't know who it was that said this, said, and I rather like this, we would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people thought about us if we knew how little time they spent doing it. Yeah? We somehow imagine that everybody's thinking about us. But actually, if we look at what we're mostly thinking about us, about me, and so are they. They're mostly thinking about them and worrying about what we might be thinking about them, not the other way around. So there's something about just putting that down and saying, okay, yeah, it happens, but I can see it. And if I can see it, I don't have to believe in it, 
that it's true, the judging tendency, but nor do I have to somehow stop it happening or push it away. I need to hold it and see, oh, it arises out of something painful or difficult or scary or challenging. And what's actually needed here is kindness. It's like, oh, you're scared. Oh, I'm hurting. Oh, I didn't like it this way. I want me to show up differently there. I wanted to look good when in the end I think I might have looked a bit silly or just ordinary. Oh, oh maybe that's okay. Maybe that's all right. I didn't really want to come in here and demonstrate to you the fact that my mind completely goes blank sometimes. When I'm trying to speak to 50 people, it's a bit like, just a moment, what if it does that and it stays that way? Scary, huh? But it might do one day. I hope it hasn't happened yet, but it, and I hope it doesn't. But, you know, what would we do? I'd sit here, you'd sit here. Wouldn't be the end of the world. But something in me might think it's going to be. Bringing kindness to ourselves makes sense. Because it's actually what we need. Just as we wish it from others. From ourselves we wish it too. And we can offer it to ourselves. We can learn to bring some kindness to ourselves. It's part of what we're learning here. It's actually a kindness to let ourselves settle and begin to feel what's true and actually going on. Even if it's not easy, it is a kindness to ourselves to do so. Because it's where we actually enter more fully into the journey of waking up. Coming to understand what it is that truly serves our lives and our world. And so we're interested in inner peace. We're interested in a sense of well-being, of, of a release from the struggle, the conflict and the distress that can so often seem to dominate aspects of our experience, even if, of course, there are also those places of joy, of sweetness, of connection, of well-being, of ease. Indeed, they are there too, I'm sure. But sometimes it can feel like for us that they are easily overwhelmed by the territory that's much more challenging, difficult, or distressing for us. So there's some fundamental understandings that the Buddha spoke of and that are really embedded in what we're doing here, about what really brings peace in our hearts. And one of them is this, this quality that the Buddha spoke of as non-remorse, or lack of remorse in the heart, which really comes out of, or non-regret, which comes out of having done the best we can and recognizing we did the best we can for our well-being and the welfare of others. That where we didn't do the best we could to protect others or to protect and care for ourselves, we tend to feel sorrow and regret. If you think about the things that we feel sorrow or regret about, there's of course those things where there are losses in our lives that are sad and painful. And of course there's a sorrow that things might be such way. But the really deep or painful regret is where I feel like, oh, I didn't really take care of this or that as I could have and would have wished to. Not that that's about judging oneself, but just seeing that. So the, the precepts that I spoke of last night, part of their power is not just that they protect us and they protect each other and our world, but they also provide a, provide a basis for actual inner peace, for rest. That it's actually something of human goodness and contacting, expressing our natural human goodness that allows our heart to come to rest. The Buddha once said, on goodness of heart 
is built peace of heart and peace of mind. That quality of goodness, peace comes from being in touch with that. And some of what we encounter when we engage in meditation practice, coming on a retreat, perhaps for the first time, perhaps having done so many times, sometimes into our consciousness, those things that we're still not quite feeling resolved with somehow just appear. We don't have to do something with them or fix them, but just let ourselves feel the resonance, the impact, the sense of what that is. And again, to bring kindness to it. Another element of what allows the heart to rest more at peace is actually starting to see that that caring, that underlying quality of trying to take care of ourselves comes out of an essential and fundamental goodness at the core of what it is that we are, at the core of our nature, we could say. There is no such thing as original sin or fundamental badness. That's a confusion and an error that has been tragically foisted upon us. It's not actually what we find if we look into our hearts. What we see is that we tried really hard to make things go well because we cared about others and we cared about ourselves. And what I see is that when I look for myself, that yes, sometimes I did things that hurt others, harmed others. But I only ever did that either because I didn't realize it would hurt them or because in some way I was desperately trying to get what I thought I needed or avoid what I was afraid of to the extent that I couldn't see or in that moment care about those impacts on others. I could only respond to the pressure from within to get or to escape from. Do you see how that's so? If you ask yourself deeply, I think you'll find the same. And it's something I come back to and ask myself again and again. So what we see in this is that actually we have a good heart. We're trying really hard. Really, we are. But we don't necessarily have the wisdom to go with it. Because the wisdom is what allows us to know how to effectively act in the world, how to skillfully live in this life in such a way that actually does bring our well-being and the well-being and support the well-being of those we care for and that actually reveals itself in such a way that we see that to do so is not in conflict with the well-being of others. So it's not like I've got to look after my well-being at the expense of theirs. Or somehow I have to sacrifice myself to their well-being and not look after me. Because neither of those are sustainable and neither of them work. Our heart does not come to rest if we take either of those positions or extremes. So the materialistic view of, well, I've just got to get what I can for myself. It's each man, woman and dog for themselves and that's how it works. It doesn't bring happiness. And well, I guess I better just sacrifice myself and not care about me and just look after everyone else. It doesn't work. And sometimes that's what we think the spiritual message is, and it's not. The spiritual teachings and truths are pointing to an equivalence of value, of importance, not separating, not making a hierarchy, so that, yes, we're equally important, not more so than others, nor less so. And holding that equivalence, that equalness, at some times we prioritise the need of another over our own. And at other times we'll prioritise the need of our own life, body, heart and mind, over the need of another. And that actually harmony is found in that 
fluidity in that movement, when we hold ultimately all things equal in that sense of having their place, their value, including ourselves and each other and all things. To understand that blindness isn't our fault, we don't understand because we don't see, because we haven't been taught and learned and shown how to see, because it's not so obvious. And it takes time. It's not easy. It's not easy to do this. The word the Buddha used, avidya, translates most usefully as blindness. Though some of the early translations, and still used quite commonly, I think, and rather sadly today, translated the word as, as ignorance, which sounds a bit pejorative, like, you're stupid, you know? But actually, it's no, it's like blindness, we don't see. And we don't see because we don't pay attention. Because we don't really look at what's going on. We're mostly caught up in what we wish was going on, or what used to be going on, or what we hope might be going on, and what we fear will be going on. Huh? We're not looking at what is going on. So the fundamental practice, and I think you've heard me say this already today, is to notice what's actually happening. And that was the Buddha's fundamental teaching in terms of a practice. There was a lot of teaching also about what we then see when we start to pay attention to what's going on. But actually that's enough. We, st we pay attention, we start to see. That is actually unstoppable. And so... Not seeing clearly, not understanding, isn't our fault. Because that's just how we come in. And in a simple way we could describe it, we could say we come in, our hearts are full of love, and we haven't got a clue. And there's something sweet about that. We call it innocence in a baby, in a child. Innocence. It still doesn't have a clue, but at least it knows it doesn't have a clue. The problem comes when we think we know, but actually we don't then it starts to verge on what we call ignorance, and that's a little more dangerous. But ultimately, it is simply not seeing. It's blindness. And so, part of what we learn, part of what we understand is that it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. Insofar as we can respond to the circumstance, we can cultivate mindfulness, awareness, presence, we can start to see what's going on. We can start to see clearly the way things are. And so in this, to understand the nature of the transformative process we're engaged in here is to see that it's not through some kind of willpower or forcing that we make it happen, not through controlling ourselves or our experience and making a certain kind of meditative thing that we call, you know, spiritual experience or some kind of state of being a Buddhist, or whatever we might imagine this thing to be. It's not about making that happen, but about recognizing that we have a capacity to cultivate that which is supportive and wholesome, to cultivate the conditions that we are, in a way, soaking in, or supported by, or resting in, the wholesome qualities of heart and mind that we can develop that take time, but that we can develop. And that as we develop them, we see they actually lead us in the direction we wish to travel. They actually move us in the way we wish to move. 
And so in just a kind of a brief sort of description of this, we can see how that we begin the meditation practice and we don't know what's going to happen. We have some idea, perhaps some some sort of, sort of trust that maybe this might be useful. Enough trust just to check it out and see, which is what perhaps we're doing here. And in the, in the tradition, we talk about this as the kind of the, the first level of faith. And it's not a faith that just believes things because we've been told and because we have to, but it's that faith that says, yeah, I'll just check it out and see for myself. What happens if I start to pay attention to things the way they're suggesting? Because they seem like they maybe have some idea what they're talking about, though I'm not sure. You know, a little... A little caution there is not, you know, not a bad thing. What happens is then we actually apply ourselves, we make an effort. This quality of engaging, of seeing what we can do to be present, to be awake. That's what our effort is here for. Not to make something happen, but to be here. To come back, to reconnect. And as we start to do that, we start to become more aware, more mindful, more present. We start to see the experiences unfolding more clearly. And as we start to see them unfolding more clearly, more closely, we also start to be less carried away by them, less caught up in them, and we start to settle. There's a way in which the mind begins to gather, to sort of collect. We sometimes talk about concentration, and it's not such a useful word because it sounds a bit like what you do to make tomato concentrate, like you squeeze all the moisture out of it. Sometimes we might catch ourselves trying to squeeze our mind into getting it to be still. It doesn't work. It's actually much more about a sense of gathering, of collecting, of allowing a certain calming to happen because we're no longer pushing away or pulling towards different experiences. And there's a certain gathering, collecting, calming that happens. And as that happens, we start to understand what's happening. Wisdom starts to arise. Discernment starts to blossom in the heart and mind. And from that discernment, from understanding, oh, actually, I'll just take an example. We start meditating. We're trying to sort of settle and calm. We keep trying to make it happen. Whereas, oh, actually, quite a lot of the agitation is this effort to get my mind to shut up. Now, I can't make my mind shut up, but I could stop trying to force it to be quiet. And if we stop forcing it to be quiet, we notice, oh, it's already a lot quieter once that's not happening. And we think, oh, oh gosh, look at that. Actually, this process seems to work. And so we start to trust it a little more through seeing. We've understood something. And that brings a deeper sense of experiential faith where we know, oh, yeah, this actually works. And then we actually can apply ourselves, again, more skillfully with less forcing and yet a fullness of engagement. And out of that, the mindfulness deepens further, the calming and the wisdom. And it cycles in this way, this deepening of our practice unfolding. And I just moved the first piece of paper, of which there are two, and I've been speaking for 45 minutes. Hmm. <laughs> I have a few more things I'd like to say. And we've been here a little while, but I think we could probably just pause for a moment. Just right there. Because I've noticed that it's useful sometimes to pause. And maybe take a moment to stand up or stretch or move your body. If you'd like to and feel it would be useful. Don't go away. Because we'll be continuing in just a moment or two. But let's just take a moment to bring some ease. If you wish, to your body. To stretch, to move. To bend.
I don't think I've actually done this in the middle of a Dharma talk before. <laughs> and don't worry, I won't uh, take as long over the first bit of paper as the second. Sorry, over the second piece of paper as the first. But it's interesting even here, isn't it, just to notice how we could just bring kindness to the process, which for me it's a kindness to say, okay, I've got more to say, but bodies might have had enough, so we could maybe find a compromise. And I hope that works to some degree. So I was just reflecting now that the wisdom that we start to, to gain here is actually understanding the real issue is the lack of seeing what's going on. And so we become really interested to see. Even if what we see isn't always comfortable or easy, because it isn't sometimes, we become interested because this is actually the key to unlock it. Is to be willing to see it rather than wanting to look, it away, look away from it or just wishing it wouldn't happen or would it go away. There isn't a fairy godmother who's going to wave the wand and just, bing, it gets sorted. But experience arises according to conditions and lawful principles and patterns which we can start to understand. And as we understand them, we can actually start to unpack them. And they actually begin to soften, dissolve and ultimately fall away. So although we can't make it happen, transformation is possible and is actually already happening. Sometimes we don't even notice it for a while. I once had someone come on a retreat for a weekend like this and they wrote to me um, not long after saying, I left the retreat, I thought nothing had happened, it was a complete waste of time. And then the next day at work I realised I just wasn't so angry with everybody. Oh, she thought maybe something happened. But what do we see? What do we notice? We notice what pushes and pulls us. How much we tend to think that our experience and the struggle of our life is just me. How many times I've heard someone describe to me the experience of sitting in meditation, feeling like, I can't do it, it's hopeless, this is just no good, it's not working. I open our eyes, look around, think, Everyone else can do it. They're all so calm. They're probably all, you know, really peaceful, just about fully enlightened. And like, here we are, 50 Buddhas to be and one overcooked vegetable. Huh? And then probably a few moments later, the person just sitting there, someone else looks over at them, having the same experience. Look, wow, they're sitting really still and quiet. They look relaxed. Actually, they've just given up. But, um, you know, it's kind of relaxation in that. We do this all the time. What about if we didn't believe that? We say, oh, actually, we're all here. 
Some part of us is overcooked vegetable. Some part of us is, yeah, Buddha's waking up. <coughs> Buddha simply means one who is awake. <coughs> We've probably all had a few moments of that. And yet there are deeper levels of that we can discover. We've probably noticed that we're hungry for something to fill us up. And how when we take away a lot of the things we usually use, like televisions and computers and you know, well-stocked refrigerators, we go looking for something else and we're pretty shameless about it, you know? I've found myself carefully reading the label on tea bags, you know, as if it was interesting. Have you? I mean, it's not surprising. We sometimes go looking for something to feed us. Like, what, what can I have? Oh, what's, what's going on? Like there's something in us that's looking for something. And so what we need to also reflect on is that these experiences don't fulfill us. The nature of them is that they're changing. All the things of our life come and go, move and flow, breathe in, breathe out. This feeling, that feeling, mind's happy, mind's sad, body's comfortable, body's aching. And likewise in the world. We can't get it to the way we want it. Or if we do, just briefly, we can't keep it there. So we can't invest the satisfaction of our life in organizing things, outer things or inner experience, because it keeps changing. And because it keeps changing, we kind of need to give it more space. We need to understand its purpose is not to fulfill us, but it's actually the raw material from which the learning of our life takes place. To understand we all experience that which is difficult. And the Buddha spoke of this again and again. It's not just you or me that has these difficult things. The way it's difficult for you or for me may be quite particular and personal to, to you or to me, to our circumstance and history, to our particular makeup, our limitations, our capacities. But the fact is that we all have a version of that. Every one of us. All of us do. And that's part of what we need to make peace with. To understand that that which is difficult and challenging in our lives is basically calling to us. Whether it's pain in our knee or the distress of something really difficult in our world or our family. It's like, oh, it's saying we need to give this some attention. We need to look at it rather than wish it wasn't there and look away from it. We need to look and see, oh, what's needed here? What might be useful here? Because what we see underlying all of this is a sense of being separate, isolated, disconnected, and somehow apart from all of life, that we believe to be the truth. And it's profoundly painful to us, this perception, this sense, this belief. It's profoundly painful to us because it's not true. It's not actually in accord with the way things are. And yet the way we perceive our experience is out there happening to me. And the way we think about it as mine or about me tends to create the sense that somehow we're in here and it's out there and everybody else is somehow separate from that and from us. And it's not true. There is a certain truth to it in that there are these individual expressions of life. Yes, but we're breathing the same air. And the oxygen that's in your lungs right now, some of it was in somebody else's lungs a little while ago. 
Because, you know, we breathe it in and we breathe it out. Even at that physical level, we're sharing the same material. And so much more at a deeper level. We are co-participating in what's happening here. So what this really means is to let go of our demand that be, things be a certain way. To not be chasing so much for what we think we want or need. Of course, taking care at a practical level of, you know, we need food and shelter and, you know, livelihood, all of that. We need to take care of that. And there are some things, you know, and I'm saying, and not pushing away those things we are afraid of or feel threatened. Of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, if we're standing on the road, car coming towards us, sure, get out of the way. Or, you know, protect ourselves where necessary. But at an inner level, actually just starting to open more to our life, to our experience, to see what is it that's here. To let go of the demand that things be other than as they are. To let things be as they are. And as... Uh, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, a much-loved master of Thailand, Ajahn Chah, he said once, Let go a little, and you'll have a little peace. Let go a lot, and you'll know a lot of peace. Let go completely, and you'll know complete peace and natural inner freedom. So we're learning here what it means to let things go, to let things be. When it's difficult things, rather than letting them go, because we think then they should go away, it's more useful to think, let them be. Let them be. And see what it is to inhabit this, this vital, living, dynamic, wakeful presence that becomes more and more available for us, in us, and to us, as we practice in this way. To see that in this condition of being present, something fundamental about life is revealed to us, which we recognize because we've known it, but which is fresh to us because we've forgotten it, and which we can't quite put our finger on, to say it's this or it's that. We're talking about something here that is not bound by or defined by or according to our experience and the content of what happens to us or around us and yet is not separate from all of that either. And we can't name it or grab it or take hold of it. We can't package it up and take it to show our friends. But we can know it directly, and we can see and live the knowing of it, which is expressed in compassion, in kindness, in care for life, for ourselves, for each other, for all that is. And that has some understanding of how to live in this world, in peace and in freedom with care and compassion in our hearts for each other, for ourselves and all beings. And it's really this that our practice is concerned with.
So let's just sit quietly for one or two moments together. So may we all, through our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in kindness and care for our own well-being and that of others. And may we come to understand the wisdom of life that allows us to live in peace and harmony with ourselves and each other. May we come to that awakening the Buddha pointed to and spoke of that has been known by human beings, women and men such as ourselves through the generations in which peace and freedom reveal their fullness for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. 